0: I'm uh, Scott Garner. I'm the administrative director of the uh, MBA Healthcare Administration Specialization here at Baylor University, and uh, we'll host this session. We have uh, two speakers that are going to deal with a lot of uh, things, international crisis, disaster type situations. And the first speaker is going to be Commander Eric Timmons. Uh, I actually got Eric to come here. Uh, The uh, kind of the head HA guy is a good friend of mine. We went to school together, so I called him, and he called somebody else. And and, uh, Eric's one of two people at uh, DOD that uh, I'd say more monitor and get all the information in on uh, things that are going in and disasters and the relationships uh, that they have with civilian uh, intervention by the uh, U.S. military or DOD doing that. And so uh, I've asked Eric, I guess we've asked him to kind of concentrate on Haiti at this for this presentation, Eric, I think that's what we're going to do. And I think he's got lots of pictures and all that to uh, show you. And, and he's out of uh, Washington, D.C., which is, I'm sure he's very happy to be here in Waco. So, Eric, if you want to try to set this up. Thank you. I was
1: going to say uh, thank you for the introduction and thank you for getting me out of D.C. Uh, down here, uh, almost home, I had the opportunity to go to school just a little south of here and really appreciate getting back okay so this is uh can you hear me okay in the back Okay. I'm going to talk a little bit, uh, as was mentioned, about Department of Defense, international medical support, and then go specifically into Haiti. And since I do work for the Department of Defense, got a lot of pictures and not a lot of words, hopefully, so we can kind of go through this, and if you have any questions, you can uh, approach me later. I understand some folks in this room may have even been to Haiti, had dinner last night with a gentleman, physician that was actually there a couple days after the event. Um, I'm going to real quick set the stage, talk a little bit kind of about why we were there uh, it's called uh, uh, Brief Orientation Stability Operations, and it's to explain kind of what DOD's optics are for providing international support, talk a little bit about the Department of Defense for the peop- uh, support for the people and the government of Haiti, and then some just general broad uh, medical support and issues. Now, since I am from the military, I do tend to have acronyms up here, so if there's something that may confuse you or at you don't know what, you can talk to me, uh, ask the question or even uh, after the after the, uh the event. Okay, real quick. Stability operations. A lot of uh, a lot of work and effort has been put into the Department of Defense on stability operations. I'm not going to read this, but essentially, it uh, encompasses various military missions, tasks conducted outside the United States by the military with these objectives. This is a big deal for us. Um, and it includes a significant health and medical component. My office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs is very actively engaged in developing policy for the Department of Defense to provide and uh, to plan for and provide this kind of a support to international organizations to international countries and international organizations. Uh, some sort of a different twist, the medical stability operations here. Uh, We've got some some programs definitions here. Medical security cooperation, that's the definition. Theater security cooperation is the buzzword within the military. Essentially what it means is this is a program that the the folks that, that run military operations in that area have a program to support the countries within their area of responsibility and a lot of effort and money is paid to this by the Department of Defense. One example here is the UNS, United States Naval Ship Comfort. It's a big hospital ship. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But we had a, uh, a major evolution in the South America called uh, Continuing Promise in 2009. went to a lot of countries, took care of a lot of people, a lot of uh, uh, national folks from these countries, and provide a lot of education and infrastructure building. Medical capacity building, again, is another component of theater medical stability operations. Again, we did that, uh, as I mentioned, in South America by providing uh, assistance and education within these countries. And a lot of these folks are military folks, military medical folks, some interagency, some civilians that do this. Health sector stabilization reconstruction, again, another component of medical stability operations focusing on uh, uh, provincial health sector efforts. Providing uh, medical care as well, and then the last one sort of is a big uh, um, evolution that we did for Haiti uh, with uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster response, some kind, sometimes called HATR, HADR. So, medical objectives and stability ops—you can kind of see here these are global, very you know, uh, nice uh, sentiments, but essentially preserving host nation infrastructure and people and uh, enhancing existing capabilities, restoring lost capacity, fulfilling responsibilities under humanitarian law, and transitioning health sector activities for long-term sustainment, all of which we're doing in Haiti now, all of which we've done in other countries uh, to assist those countries in getting up Iraq, Afghanistan, you name it, wherever DOD goes and provide support to host nations. This is what our objectives are medically. Medical uh, is uh, recognized um, as a very important component of stability operations. Uh, on the left, we have the quadren- quadrennial defense review. It's something that happens every four years. It's a zero base, in essence, a zero base estimate of what capabilities need to occur. Medical is a big component of that. And you can read right there: that the U.S. must work with new international partners. That picture to the right is to, to the right here is the hospital ship. U.S. hospital ship. Now, why are we so engaged, DOD, why are we so engaged in taking as much effort as we are in planning this? That picture on the bottom is a Chinese hospital ship. It's a brand new state-of-the-art hospital ship because China, and I think we've had you've had discussions about China, is very much engaged and understands winning hearts and minds and the value of that. They're very much engaged in Asia and South America, Latin America. So we see that as an emerging issue and... and take it for what it's worth, an emerging threat. Now we're going to transition to DOD support for, uh, for Haitian uh, situation. These, in essence, are, are our marching orders from our commander-in-chief, President of the United States. This is what he said verbatim, Haiti matters, Not some kind, sometimes called HADR, H-A-D-R. So medical objectives and stability ops, you can kind of see here these are global, very you know, uh, nice uh, sentiments but essentially preserving host nation infrastructure and people and uh, enhancing existing capabilities, restoring lost capacity, fulfilling responsibilities under humanitarian law, and transitioning health sector activities for long-term sustainment, all of which we're doing in Haiti now, all of which we've done in other countries uh, to assist those countries in getting up Iraq, Afghanistan, you name it, wherever DOD goes and provides support to host nations. This is what our objectives are medically. Medical uh, is uh, recognized um, as an in very important component of stability operations. Uh, on the left, we have the quadren- quadrennial defense review. It's something that happens every four years. It's a zero base, in essence, a zero base estimate of what capabilities need to occur. Medical is a big component of that. And you can read right there: that the U.S. must work with new international partners. That picture to the right is to, to the right here is the hospital ship. US hospital ship. Now, why are we so engaged? DOD, why are we so engaged in taking as much effort as we are in planning this? That picture on the bottom is a Chinese hospital ship. It's a brand new state of the art hospital ship because China, and I think we've had you've had discussions about China, is very much engaged and understands winning hearts and minds and the value of that. They're very much engaged in Asia and South America, Latin America. So we see that as an emerging issue and, and Take it for what it's worth, an emerging threat. Now we're going to transition to DOD support for, uh, for Haitian uh, situation. These, in essence, are, are our marching orders from our Commander-in-Chief, President of the United States. This is what he said verbatim. Haiti matters. The lead federal agency for this evolution for what happened in Haiti was the Department of State, and then it kind of filtered down the U.S. Agency for National Development and then the U.S. Office for Foreign Disaster Assistance. That's kind of how it worked. And they uh, then transmitted the requirement and the request for DOD support to uh, the Department of State, who then, you know, bureaucratically we have to go through this process, but this is, it's a lockstep process, and it doesn't change, and it doesn't uh, modify based on personalities. This is what happens. This is how it happens. Okay, now transitioning a little bit to uh, who from the DOD owned the mission of uh, supporting Haiti. The picture on the right, not a great picture, but it's a picture of South America and then some countries in the Caribbean. That is what's called the geographical area of responsibility for the U.S. Southern Command. It's a four-star billet. I'll show you a slide here in a little bit. But it's four-star um, uh, officer who runs that, and that's their AOR area of responsibility, and they have a long-standing program of humanitarian assistance, and this is what they do. And these are sort of the objectives they fund, routinely fund humanitarian assistance, medical readiness training exercises, a lot of activity in the Southern Commands uh, area of responsibility. That picture that I showed you about the comfort going around the area that was under Southcom's humanitarian assistance program. A lot of effort, a lot of money spent on this. And we do medical readiness training exercises for, for many, many people. I myself have been on several in this AOR and really found it to be very enjoyable and and we helped a lot of folks. Transitioning now to what happened in, in, in Haiti, you can see the slide at the top, sort of the epicenter around Port-au-Prince and then kind of uh, uh, comes out, uh, but you can see the areas affected. It's a picture of actual damage to a, a village. Um, I got updated, uh, the slide that I had earlier had about 230,000. I think the, I got an estimate of over 300,000 killed. 1.3 million people um, settled uh, or displaced. Um, about 605,000 people have migrated. And you can see the most affected areas of Port of Prince and some other, country, or some other cities within uh, just uh, to the left there. The... Um, Actual military response was conducted uh, an organization uh, stood up called Joint Task Force Haiti, JTF Haiti, that was commanded by a three-star general who incidentally was in Haiti at a meeting with about 30 or 40 of his staff when the earthquake happened. And sort of an interesting sideline, the reason that the earthquake happened, that general caused it so that we could go in and take over Haiti and own it. (laughs) And um, you just talked to, you know, Chavez and some other folks from Cuba, and that's why we did it, because DOD wanted to own Haiti. So um, it's interesting, you know, the, the sort of the, the folks that have that that perception. But the point is that this effort was also, you can see the AID, uh, Rajiv uh, Shah was the administrator of AID and was the lead federal agency, the lead federal governmental uh, point of contact for this. So you can see our response included, uh, Response uh, forces capabilities from all services of, of the military, and uh, we provided mostly uh, search and rescue and infrastructure building, but also medical treatment and uh, repairing vital services. By January 26, a week or so, a couple weeks after the event, uh, we had about 17,000 people uh, on the ground in and around Haiti. Uh, again, this is a real, uh, apologize for sort of, you know, all the, the I got some sort of charts that are going to kind of I hurt your eyes, but essentially, the takeaway here is that this is the chain of command, military. You know, we got to have chain of command organizational uh, slides. The, uh, the the General Fraser, the lead that four star, is the Southcom commander. He's the overall commander for the military forces in that AOR area of responsibility. General Keene, as I mentioned, the general is trying to take over. Uh, he took over the response efforts. He was there in the, in the uh, country at the time of the event. The big takeaway here is that off to the right is all of the non-governmental organizations, intergovernmental organizations, civilian organizations, et cetera, that were tethered and Im- embedded in the headquarters of that three-star. DOD, the new model is DOD doesn't go in and, you know, John Wayne to take over. They have a lot of inter-agency uh, and uh, NGO relationships built up routinely. And Southcom does this for a living. They're very good at this. Uh, there were some issues and some burps here, but and then down below where it says Major General Allen, that is really the uh, Joint Task Force Haiti that's a command and control, um, and these other folks were sort of owned and commanded uh, different types of air forces, naval forces, ground forces, etc. cetera. The timeline uh, for the initial DoD support, again earthquake happened on the 12th uh... by the fourteenth we were flowing about two thousand three thousand marines from camp lejeune on the north carolina coast and from the eighty second airborne in north carolina uh, to go and provide immediate uh, troop support for security search and rescue that type of thing a medical capability the carrier uss carl vinson a lot of airplanes but mostly most important helicopters a, a landing platform for uh for a lot of uh, capabilities that are going to be needed. You can see the numbers, 136,000 food packets, 70,000 water containers. By the 20th of January, again, it's, uh, what, seven, eight days after the event, um, you can see the, the types of capabilities that were there. The hospital ship comfort arrives and receives patients. The hospital ship comfort is moored out of Baltimore. Normally it takes five days for the time you get the order to the time it's steaming and, and rolling because you got to load supplies, personnel, et cetera took 69 hours from the time it got uh, notified to the time it was steaming, ready to go. Picked up people and equipment along the way, but they were on the, on the road ready to go uh, to provide the capability to provide medical care. Again, by the 21st, you can kind of see this is sort of the height of the response. February and March, so everything's kind of on the downslide f- from a support um, perspective for DOD. Those hospital ships, the USS Bunker Hill is a hel- helicopter carrier. It carries the Marines in, into the fight and to support, um, and by, by March, the comfort had discharged the last patient. Again, a very busy slide. My apologies. This is actually a medical operational, uh, what's called a common operating picture for the military. It's just a, a, a picture showing the commander what he's got and where it is. And for us, this the only thing I wanted to show you here is, despite the busyness of the slide, a lot of medical capability on the ground uh, providing support to the Haitians. Comfort, again, is the hospital ship. The batan, the Nassau are troop carriers for the Marines. A lot of helicopters, a lot of of bunks, a lot of logistical capability. And then, of course, on the right we wanted to track what international capabilities were available. Again, another busy slide. I'm from DOD, so I like pictures to make it easy for me, but I just want to show you on the left there, level one is basic health care. And most of the health care that DOD sent was for troops who were deployed to provide their health care, but also to help out the Haitians. But a lot of Army capabilities, very small units, basic medical care, no surgical capability to speak of, just basic health care. And as we go into level, where it says level three, we have an Air Force hospital with ten beds, surgical capabilities that provided uh, support at the airhead, uh, Port-au-Prince, and then, of course, the comfort and then to the right, we had CONUS, uh, Continental United States, the United States uh, Hospitals uh, for the Military and the VA, now the Veterans Administration. Now, the slide here also depicts the way we evacuated Haitians. At One of my responsibilities at, was at the policy level, was working with the interagency, the VA, and Health and Human Services and the Department of Defense on coordinating and getting Haitians back to the states. So what would happen is we'd have, and we we evacuated a couple hundred Haitians and some of their family members to the United States and put them into uh, what's called the National Disaster Medical System, which are Veterans Administration hospitals, DOD hospitals, who coordinate for uh, putting... um, Patients into member hospitals around that federal coordinating center. So, um, some hospital uh, we have uh, some hospitals in Tampa, in Atlanta, got patients from uh, uh, Haitian patients from this evolution. So, b- very busy slide, but essentially, this this process of medical treatment and medical evacuation worked quite well. Uh, The Transportation Command, that is another large organization within DOD that owns all of the lift. They own all the aircraft. Uh, They evacuated over 200 patients. Uh, There were a lot more patients that were evacuated by non-governmental organizations. Uh, Guys like John Travolta takes his plane down to Haiti, picks up some people, and takes them back to the States. Um, A lot of uh, other international organizations did the same thing. And also at the bottom, a little-known point that the DOD owns the National Center for Medical Intelligence, NCMI. And these guys are uh, very active internationally with providing medical capability assessments and also threat assess- uh, health threats to the countries and also to uh, deploying forces, and they were very active for this, for this uh, evolution. USNS Comfort, again a busy slide, 1,000-bed capability. When this is actually operational uh, and up and running and fully staffed, it's the seventh largest trauma center in the United States. We have two of them in DOD. This was staffed for the 1,000 bed the the first time since it's been delivered in 1987 that that happened, and that's including two wars. For Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we sent both of them almost to the 1,000 bed level, but didn't have it as uh, operational, didn't have the need for that. So it has um, 12 operating rooms. You can see the breakdown here. As I said, total patient capacity of 1,000 beds. I think it got up to about 930, 940 operating beds that were occupied at one point. Very, very critical capability. And you can see the different services here. We've got all kinds of specialties, uh, surgeons in here uh, and and a lot of uh, folks that normally don't deploy pediatrics. Um, some uh, neurosurgical capabilities that went with the ship that really helped uh, provide a lot of support to the Haitians. It also can uh, distill 30,000 gallons of fresh water a day. Uh, We treated uh, the comfort, um, treated a little over a thousand patients and performed 843 surgeries aboard ship and a lot of them were complicated, a lot of orthopedic crush injuries and uh, some of those folks then were evacuated from the ship out to uh, to uh, the United States the limiting factor on this ship though if you take a look at the picture um, anything kind of strike you about getting onto this ship if this ship is parked out in the water there's only two ways to get to it and none of them are really good you can land one helicopter on the deck, deck spot it's called it's, the right, it's sort of at, at the front there one helicopter. You can't really bring a lot of ships up to the side and dump patients off. You can do that, but that's one of the limiting factors this, of this the this ship. But they made it happen and made it work. Uh, also, uh, the bottom organizations that include that, that always, when this ship goes out, it went out to uh, Indonesia for the tsunami, went out to Southcom, as I said, for the, uh, uh, the uh, sailing last year for uh, the, the Promise mission. It always goes with an augmentation of different people from different services, public health service, for instance, from the Health and Human Services, and Project Hope, Operation Smile, National Nurse Association, Johns Hopkins, always has a lot of different folks in our agency and also other uh, organizations. Uh, A view from those folks who were there for Haiti in regards to DoD. Now, we can get, you know, sort of put my bias in. DoD had some criticism for our response there. Uh, this actually was from a physician who was on the ground, wrote this in the uh, Journal of uh, JAMA, I think, uh, maybe three weeks ago. Just came out, Lynn Laurie is her name, with others. Actual pictures of Army soldiers loading folks into the frontline ambulances. But you can read there that basically, you know, the soldiers that provided support there came with a can-do attitude. And generally, you go in kind of austere. You don't have a lot of stuff there that you can use. But they, they got the mission done. And... Uh, I like her last sense. We're aware of the complexity and sensitivity of interactions between non-governmental organizations and the military. If you're going to go into international health, it's an unwritten rule. It's the elephant in the room, but it's always there. That NGOs and the military don't always see things the way you know. They don't see things the same way. They don't always have the same objectives. They don't always have the same way to get there. But again, the viewpoint is what's best for the patient, and we always have that in mind. Nobody's perfect. A slide from that deck slide that I showed with that busy picture of all the airplanes, etc. This is uh, at the combatant command level. This was a briefing slide taken from that for the uh, general. And it shows you all the sort of the capabilities and the interagency stuff that's going on so he has situational awareness of what everyone's doing. And you can see a World Food Program of the WFP, NGOs, the World Health Organization, um, Immigration Department of State. You know, a lot of acronyms, but essentially that gives him a snapshot of what is going on in the world outside of DOD. Medical assessment, not a lot here in terms of, of um, explaining, but but, again, the snapshot. It's good for the, you know, commanders want to have bottom line up front in the military, we call it. You know, a picture, boom, okay, got it, move on, because they have a lot of information they have to take in. And this is from the surgeon. The Southern Command surgeon tells him all about sort of what the assessment is and what's going on. Total number of surgeries, got it. Any medical supply issues, got it. Evacuations got it. You kind of go see, you know, are we having any issues coming up? And they're planning. So when you go into an operation, you're planning for what you're doing. You're also planning for what you're going to do in the next five days, next six days, next two, three weeks, getting out and getting back. It's a very complex operation. Summary slide on what DOD did. You can kind of see medically kind of going down here. HATER, a Humanitarian Assistance Disaster Response. That's what that means, and then kind of medical, kind of see that at any given time. Or this was at the end of the evolu- at the end of the operation. So there were 130 mobile clinics and 156 on-site clinics established at that point. Treated 8,600 Haitians. These are established on the ground in Haiti, um, so the military can can move out and uh, and go back to uh, its normal mission of providing support uh, to the Department of Defense and to the President. Again, 177 Haitian nationals moved to the states. That's only within the DOD system. There were many, 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 many more that were moved, but from DOD perspective, they, that we don't count that and we weren't monitoring that. A lot of uh, bulk water. MREs are mi- uh, meals ready to eat. They're a meal in a bag. Um, and anytime you go on a humanitarian mission, that's what you're going to feed the folks initially. Okay, so Broad issues, sort of a summary of thoughts or lessons learned, perhaps, or just just some some observations. Uh, This is a no-brainer. Supporting a foreign country, and I mean supporting from the DOD perspective, is a complex, wicked issue. Uh, Initial response efforts were fragmented and confused, and I'd like to know from anybody's perspective if they've ever had a support requirement of this immensity and this scope that was not fragmented and confused. Just the, the real issue is how quickly you can recover and move on and get it done. Southern Command's capability was stretched. Southern Command, normal day-to-day stuff that they do is they go into small countries or they provide medical support, medically I'm speaking, or engineering. They go in and they help out. That's what they do, small, small uh, scale. This is such an immense effort that this was not their core competency. So they're, 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 they're stepping on their toes and figuring out what's going on initially, and that was just natural. As in most disasters, clarity of messaging was a problem. Clarity of messaging to the Haitians, clarity of messaging to the different uh, government of Haiti organizations, department, of, uh, the Ministry of Health, Ministry, uh, all of the ministries that had anything to do with their response. That was a difficult issue. Movement of Haitians was complicated by the use of the national disaster medical system. Um, we, on the DOD side, provide... I had a slide for NDMS, but I took it out. Uh, the National Disaster Medical System has three components, two of which DOD sup- uh, provides support patient movement. Tr- U.S. Transportation Command owns the majority of lift assets, the, the aircraft, the large uh, airframes that they move patients on. Uh, we had to activate uh, um, that piece, plus we had to activate uh, the state-based hospital system. That is not meant for international response. That's meant for something that happens on the homeland. And the reason it was complicated was payment. If you're a Haitian and you're evacuated from Haiti to a stateside hospital, you are declared a humanitarian parolee, which means you become eligible for Medicaid payment systems, which means when you get to the hospital, to a civilian hospital in Tampa or Atlanta, you're going to be paid for by the Medicaid system. NDMS patients normally, if we have an event stateside, get 100%, 110% of the Medicare rate. So Florida's sure. complaining that they're not supposed to be taking a m- bunch of these patients cuz they only Florida's paying 40% of the Medicaid bill by the way. So there's issues there plus issues of repatriation. Okay? We got all these Haitians here. Some cases Haiti doesn't want them back. Some cases some of them disappear. They took off because they got their treatment and they took, they, they 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 disappeared out of the hospital. Other issues are how you get to, you know, how you get to manage them get them back because they're really not supposed to be here. They can stay here for two years, and then they have to go back and either get permanent refugee status or it's just a complex uh, issue of of how our system works, but they're going to figure that out. I think the services, and what I mean by the services, Army, Navy, Air Force did well in coordinating overall support. Interestingly enough, we each sort of stuck to our core competencies. The Navy did a great job of providing sea-based services. We had a bunch of ships off the shore, and we did our stuff on shore, came back to, to the ships, and we did a great job medically uh, afloat. And uh, the Air Force did a good job of providing support at the airhead, and the Army did a great job of providing support on the ground. As I said, medical intelligence, and that's the information of the threats, et cetera, was, was pretty good. Um, and federal agencies have made great strides in contemporary medical st- stability operations. The feds, the U.S. government, were sort of getting it based on our uh, involvement in uh, over okay. in uh, – Iraq and Afghanistan, especially Haiti. We have a problem within DOD. We don't build or grow folks that understand interagency and non-traditional stability stuff. You go in the military and you have sort of a lockstep procedure, lockstep progression up the ranks, and we don't work real well with the interagency. So, Penny, any questions? And I'll be available afterwards. Um, and this is a picture, actually, uh, no, no service bias intended. I thought it was a great picture to kind of sum it up. This is a Navy uh, corpsman who uh, is talking to a young, young fellow that's got uh, some had some ocular issues, and uh, was trying to comfort him. And these were on the, on board the ship, hospital ship comfort. So, thank you for your time, and I appreciate the, the opportunity to talk to you.
0: You. I'm going to introduce uh, Dr. Phil Nyberg, and uh, he's a senior associate of the Center of Strategic and International Studies, and uh, I, just so you don't have to do it, I already called him Dr. Phil, okay? So you can, you can let that go now. I imagine he gets it 100 times a day, but I did that for him. So, uh, but he's a pediatrician, and uh, he has uh, extensive hands-on experience, and uh, Kind of in public health issues and in these crisis response. So, doctor. Okay.
2: Do I have to get to the other? <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for that uh, that invitation, or uh, introduction. Um, and uh, actually, I'd like to start by adding my greetings, my my congratulations to. Uh, to Baylor on the success of the, uh, of the basketball team, <laughs> and since I did my pediatric and infectious disease training in Syracuse, and since Syracuse lost last night, I'll, I'll be able to root for Baylor tonight without feeling guilty. <laughs> um, okay, well, a, a couple of short points about my background, just so you'll have a sense of my perspective and my, um, my biases and, and what you're about to hear. Um, I'm a pediatrician and in trained in infectious disease. I spent time as a military physician also. In fact, that's where I learned the value of public health as a, as a medical specialty, as a health specialty. I spent a long time at the Centers for Disease Control um, working on HIV/AIDS and then um, a lot of work on refugee and disaster responses. US military and other military forces with the Agency for International Development. Uh, Department of State, World Health Organization, and, and, and other groups. Um, the presentation today will be a quick survey of uh, so the, sort of the structures and issues of uh, of the U.S. and, and other civilian um, crisis response groups, um, and, and a little bit about the developments underway in the field. and And uh, as Commander Timmerman did. I'm going to be using Haiti as as part of the uh, the background, the the uh, context for that. Okay, there'll be some recurring themes in the presentation. Uh, First is uh, being the importance of being prepared to identify crises and to respond to them, Um, and then within ongoing crises. even if you can't pre- present, prevent that crisis itself, itself, you can often manage or prevent some of the um, sub crises within it. So, for example, infectious diseases that occur after, uh, um, after events like, like earthquakes, and we'll talk more about that in a couple of minutes. Um, a- another example of that is, is uh, thinking about building codes. So there were two, two earthquakes within a relatively short time, Haiti and Chile. The one in Chile was far more powerful but caused far less damage because that country had uh, implemented and enforced building codes for a long time. Um, the importance of learning from every experience since since this field of crisis response has not really been well studied until recently. Um, and the importance of a public health perspective that is uh, uh, focusing on the health of the population, whether they're visible to you when you get there or not, uh, which is different from the medical model of, of a, a practitioner paying attention to the person in front of them who, who came came in of their own uh, initiative, and finally the um, recurring uh, value to me of of the uh, the business model or the medical model which uh, oh, sorry <coughs> the uh, the military model, which you often don 't see in the in the medical world in the health world that is uh, um, having a clear set of goals and, and having a, an operating style that focuses your resources on reaching those goals and not getting diverted to, uh, to other issues, uh, requiring accountability from people who are making decisions in the, in the field, and paying a lot of attention to metrics, that is the way you measure measuring outcomes. Okay, um, a, long, a bunch of years ago, a bunch of us at CDC did a survey of, of major causes of deaths in a, a series of refugee crises we had been involved in. And uh, the, 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 li- the uh, causes listed on this slide are not surprising since when people are forced from their homes or they decide to leave, they often have to leave behind uh, water, food, um, med- the, the basic medicines. Um, so... And, and shelter, and as they move, their access to adequate sanitary facilities is often limited or non-existent. Um, and some of the diseases that cause some of the infectious diseases that cause problems are listed here. So measles is, um, spreads much more quickly in crowded situations such as refugee camps, and measles and malnourished people is much more likely to to be a fatal illness. Uh, child pneumonia is associated with malnutrition, and in the absence of even simple antibiotics like penicillin or amoxicillin um, is, is much more likely to be fatal. Um, malaria is, is an interesting issue because sometimes you have people who live in areas where malaria is under control, but they're forced to migrate through areas where there's, uh, malaria is not under control, and you'll see epidemic malaria uh, because they, those people have lost their, their immunity. Okay, a little bit about the CSIS, the think tank I work for. It's, um, the emphasis there over the last uh, uh, almost 50 years, over, almost 60 years, um, has been on foreign policy. Um, and, but since 2001 and 2002, when 9-11 occurred and there were anthrax attacks in Washington and, uh, and the National Security Council named AIDS as uh, a, a security threat, and then rising concern about bird flu, avian flu, not the, not the flu we had this year, but uh, a different kind I'll talk about in a minute. Since then, CSIS has started to take on the generic issues of uh, health, the interface of, of health and foreign policy. Um, and those those issues are listed, some of them, some examples are listed in the uh, third bullet. Um, to me, the most interesting part of working at CSIS has been the bi- bipartisan approach. The, the agency, um, the President and CEO, a guy named John Hamry, was Deputy Secretary of Defense in the second Clinton administration. <laughs> he was a Republican but functioned in a, in a Democratic administration, and he spends a lot of emphasis, a lot of his, his energy, um, getting the agency to build bridges between people who ordinarily might not, uh, <coughs> might not be talking about policy issues Uh, One example of that is is, um, the first chair of the HIV-AIDS task force that I worked on at this agency. Uh, The first two co-chairs were uh, Bill Frist and John Kerry, who um, each of them said separately that they didn't spend a lot of time talking to each other, but they they functioned for almost two years uh, together in planning meetings, and it was uh, reassuring for my sense of how the U.S. government sometimes works. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm actually not – well, let me go back a bit. CSIS recently had a commission uh, on uh, smart global health policy that – I think I'm going to slip, skip this slide in the interest of, of time. But just to point out that, that uh, as a think tank, this group put together a, a group of prominent people, about a third of whom were uh, public health people, to make recommendations to Congress and the administration about how to how the U.S. can have a more, more coherent uh, global health approach. Okay, um, as far as crisis responses um, recently, there are really f- three types that uh, – well, three types I'm going to talk about. Maybe there's a fourth type as well. But one category is called complex humanitarian emergencies, and those are social and political conflicts – and where a large group of people is, is marginalized, put at risk, uh, often uh, forced to move um, functionally they become refugees even if they don't cross international borders, which is what now defines refugee status. But they have limited access to food, shelter, water, uh, good sanitation, and, and it's, that crisis is often associated with high mortality because of the absence of those uh, core public health issues. Second category is pandemic disease, and pandemic is uh, a term that means an epidemic that's spread widely. Um, AIDS still gets a lot of attention. Um, anthrax, we mentioned already. Avian and swine flu have both been problems. Um, some of you may remember SARS, uh, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which spread to about, I guess, a dozen countries um, in 2003. And so events like that have really caught the attention of people concerned about homeland security here. Um, There's another category of natural disasters that is – sorry, another category is natural disasters and uh, things like earthquakes, which sometimes, if they're at sea, often can cause tsunamis. There are storms of various kinds, hurricanes, which could cause flooding, Um, A fourth type we're not going to talk about today is is human-caused disasters, issues like Bhopal, the chemical spill in India, and then uh, um, the Chernobyl meltdown of the nuclear reactor. Um, What happened this year is that swine flu focused a lot of attention uh, on on pandemic concerns, and then the earthquakes in Haiti and Chile um, quickly caught public attention. I'll uh, briefly talk about something called PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Um, it's not really an emergency in my view anymore, but it is, it is the mechanism by which most of U.S. Uh, global health funding is done. Most, most U.S. funds are in the, in the PEPFAR program, which is it's an initiative that was started in 2003, to provide uh, support for HIV-AIDS control programs in, a, in 15 focus countries. Uh, largely, it's, it, a number of U.S. government agencies are involved, and they're listed on the third bullet, but it's largely implemented by non-government organizations in those countries, both U.S. non-government organizations and indigenous ones. Um, it, it's actually, its activities both directly and indirectly have resulted in two impossible dreams. One is having a couple of million people on antiretroviral drugs, which five years ago, ten years ago, was considered impossible for the developing world. And the second is uh, getting major drug companies to steeply cut the price of antiretroviral drugs for for use in those countries. Um, unfortunately, it's had limited progress on preventing new HIV infections. and um, the, the latest data shows that there are about two and a half times as many new infections each year as people being put onto and, onto treatment for AIDS. So we're, we still have a while to go to f- uh, fix that. Um, okay. Well, developing countries have weak health systems, and that's the context for for crisis response. Um, there. Uh, I'm going to skip the NGO issues on the second one, but the global detection systems that exist um, are, are pretty ad hoc. The organizations aren't bad individually, but the, their ability to coordinate or their willingness to coordinate is, is uh, um, sometimes limited. And they tend to operate in a reactive style rather than an anticipatory style. Um, within the NGO community, there's now some um, – it well, has been for for 10 or 15 years – um, some specialization, so that coordination works pretty well when agencies that are used to working together uh, do that, so you might have uh, an organization like Save the Children, uh, specialized in the f- taking care of the food concerns in the refugee population, and Oxfam would take care of the water and sanitation concerns. Um, the International Rescue Committee tends to focus now on public health and epidemiology and immunizations. Um, I'm sorry that actually Don, Dr. Poncele, is that his name? Poncele? I couldn't be here um, from PAHO's Emergency uh, Preparedness Office because PAHO has actually um, been an outlier. To, uh, at PAHO, that office has done a lot of uh, really good work in Latin America and shown outstanding leadership in, in raising the level of preparedness of individual countries. Um, Okay, the last item in this slide is the International Health Regulations, which were revised in 2005 and uh, um, set a, had new goals and obligations based on this concern about pandemic disease. So they, they put in place an obligation for countries to report disease outbreaks to the World Health Organization. Uh, they're not focused at all on, on the, capa- <coughs> sorry, the response capabilities of the countries themselves, focused on reporting. Uh, and they're not focused at all on natural disasters, but, uh, but they have provided a model that now can be used to, uh, um, to improve responses overall. Um, Commander Timmerman mentioned the, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance at AID. That's actually the core of the U.S. <laughs> civilian response um, based on the work that's done by their DART teams, the Disaster Assistance Response Teams. Um, CDC's role started actually in 1962. The Centers for Disease Control, and I suspect a lot of you don't know this, was a part of the domestic response to the Cold War. The public health service that I was in then was a uniformed service, and, and um, there was a lot of concern in '52 about biological warfare programs. So the government wanted a cadre of people who could quickly go to investigate outbreaks of strange diseases, and, and, um, and that was the beginning of CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Service. Uh, which is a, a public health training program that still still exists, and now that's been replicated outside the United States with field e- field epidemiology training programs, which function in lots of countries. Um, and the most recent uh, set of the most recent program is a new program that AID has started to look at uh, d- diseases that are spread from animals to humans. If you think about the recent history. Somebody did this calculation last year that 70% of new infectious diseases in humans are, over the last 30 years are diseases that came from that were spread from animals. So the idea is to improve the capacity in other countries to, to detect those kinds of uh, infections before they become national prob- or global problems. Um, okay, a little bit about uh, swine flu, uh, it, um, which began in Mexico and um, there, there was some concern when, when, when that started, that Mexico was had taken a long time to report the disease and to make the risk to other countries aware. And um, Mexico is a country that, like the United States, where states report disease outbreak numbers and outbreak data to the federal level. And um, actually, considering that situation, uh, I think. It, My sense is the Mexican government did quite well. Another factor of that outbreak was what sounded like high death rates at the beginning. Um, But that's probably a function of the fact that those reports were coming from hospitals. If you have a disease that has a wide spectrum of severity, the the people who end up at hospitals are likely to be the the, uh, sickest people. So, And it's it's very common to have that kind of thing um, happen at the beginning of a large disease outbreak. Mexico sent their lab samples to CDC very quickly, but they were refused entry at the border, an issue that's still being discussed between uh, Department of Homeland Security and, and Health and Human Services. Um, so the samples were, were sent to uh, the Canadian flu reference lab in Winnipeg and were identified. And the final issue, and here is the last bullet, that the U.S. military's overseas labs actually did a great job training national, training uh, country laboratory people Uh, to use, to identify um, swine flu, and uh, ended up distributing a lot of the laboratory kits once they were produced. Um, Actually, I'll skip that one also. So the Haiti earthquake, um, as Commander Timmerman mentioned, it was really an unprecedented uh, problem, and partly because it it actually happened in the capital city, the, the place where you would expect the response to get organized. So lots of deaths um, and incredible amount of, of structural damage. The seaport was unusable in terms of cranes to unload ships. The airport was essentially closed. They, the uh, control tower was knocked down. Um, every agency operating there lost uh, staff, buildings, and there was no power to commu- uh, no electricity for water. Um, um, things are better now. Um, and and actually, you heard some of that from what Commander Timmer was talking about. But um, there were some I- some interesting lessons that were learned once again, and each of these has been learned um, uh, with earlier disasters. One is that the automatic response, if you're um, a conscientious person, is to do something. And and if what happened in this situation is what what happens frequently, which is that the things that people try to do actually can end up being damaging rather than helpful. So there was a big campaign to bring uh, um, infant formula to the Haitian embassy to ship to Haiti. Well, infant formula, uh, big use of infant formula in a, in a country where the water supply is contaminated and where there's no way to heat it um, is, is asking for trouble. That basically is a major cause of infant diarrhea. Uh, another issue is the mass burials. Um, you know, the, the, there are lots of estimates of the number of deaths. We're never going to know how many deaths there were because the, um, and, and many of those burials occurred without any counts, to say nothing identification of identification of, of people. Part of the reason um, that those burials are done is because there's this persistent fear, despite years and years of, of public health people talking about it, that. that... Uh, uh, decaying corpses are associated with disease spread, and in, in fact, it's not true. Uh, but but there's this deep-seated human, human notion about that. Um, prepared, as we've talked about, in terms of, of the, the much lower impact in Chile of a stronger earthquake. One interesting one recently is the, there was a report in CDC's uh, p- weekly publication about a bunch of malaria cases that occurred among relief workers. I don't know if you saw that. You probably know more about it than, than I do. There are soldiers
1: that have malaria. In right. the fact, they're going to be torturing.
2: And they, the lesson there is that uh, those people were given, they had access to and were given prophylaxis for malaria, but didn't take it. And, and one of them was sick enough to be on a respirator for a while and fortunately recovered. But, uh, but malaria is a disease that often gets... Uh, well self-care is an issue that, that often gets overlooked in crises. um okay this is actually based on what Commander Timmerman said a couple of minutes ago you've already seen really all of these but this is my my perspective on, on the advantage of having the military involved in uh, civilian disaster, disaster responses they're very fast to respond um the command and control system, the the, uh, the chain of command is, is always clear. You know who's who's accountable. Um, the forces usually can communicate with each other, even if the, the national or local communication networks are down. Military forces can uh, almost always communicate with each other. Uh, people and supplies can get moved quickly and independently of, of uh, host country uh, damage. Uh the military can protect themselves and protect others from, uh, <coughs> excuse me, from both criminal violence and from civil unrest. And they usually have embedded medical units that, who are people that understand the importance of issues like water and sanitation and um, uh, food and shelter. And finally, the military has a long, less, uh, long tradition of learning from the successes and failures uh, of what they do—the after-action reports—and in this. Growing specialty of crisis response as it's a critical issue. Um, a couple of items uh, on the the mixed side that is, and these neither of these, none of these were none of these were problems in Haiti, but um, in areas of civil unrest, having, uh, the NGOs that have their work linked to the military may put themselves at risk of either functioning less efficiently or, or even Risk of physical violence if if the military is seen as a um, not as good guys, and this, the same thing is true. Of the second one, um, involving host country militaries in crisis responses, is good in, in the sense that it's training. But but it has it's it's only good if the host country military is not seen as a repressive force. Is is, uh, is seen as something that's uh, useful. Finally, um, there's. Coming into into perspective in Washington, a new approach to global health preparedness, and you heard a little, a little bit of that from what Commander Timmerman talked about. Um, the idea is to uh, focus on sustainability, um, and in in uh, countries and helping them to uh, comply with the regulate the requirements of the international health regulations, uh, teaching them how to identify and characterize problems. Uh, and giving them skills to allow rational planning for future responses. Uh, and the idea is to do this by providing training and key skills. Um, and some of them are listed there. There are a lot of others in, in terms of public health function. Um, and another strong uh, aspect of this is more joint operations between uh, U.S. civilian and U.S. military forces and giving the military roles, operational roles like you heard about in Haiti, but also roles in training when, um, when the military has more flexibility to move people around and, and, uh, and provide needed skills. Um, for this to be successful, it's going to require attention to uh, more equity in resources, uh, and resources and a new model of what's called, the term drives me crazy, the whole-of-government approach uh, to, uh, to decision-making. That is, somebody in the U.S. government has to be in charge. Uh, somebody has to be the final decision maker to make sure that collaboration occurs. Um, and finally, government agencies, um, which often work together well, and I think, I think Haiti was, was a good example of that, but some, some agencies have traditionally not gotten along well, and they're going to have to uh, have to learn how to do that uh, to make our own uh, responses more, uh, more efficient and more effective. I think that's – yeah. So thanks for your time, appreciate it.